Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count in Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism. Welcome to Season 2. So when I decided to launch this podcast, I wanted to start a conversation about race in early childhood. I've been working in the field of early childhood education for nearly 30 years. I've done everything from run child care centers to work on early childhood policy for the city of Minneapolis. I'm an African-American woman born and raised in Minnesota. And I'm also a parent raising teen boys together with my husband. Part of my experience working in early childhood is that the moment anyone starts talking about race, it shuts the whole conversation down. I think a lot of people want to have these conversations, but they just don't know how or where to start. So this season, I'm going to dig deeper into the how part. And I can't think of a better place to start that journey than with today's guest, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She is a psychologist and author of the best-selling book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race? Dr. Tatum has been writing about issues of race and racial identity development for over 40 years. She says that kids start internalizing racist messages from when they're as young as three or four years old. It's part of what she calls the smog we're all breathing. And if you live in a smoggy place, you will become a smog breather. So if we think about the ways that racism, the messages are embedded in our culture, even if we are silent on the subject, kids are going to absorb that information. On today's Season 2 premiere of Early Risers, Dr. Tatum is going to help us to see past this harmful smog. She has personal stories, along with practical tools and actual language we can all use for navigating conversations about race with very young children. Thank you, Dr. Tatum, for joining us on Early Risers. I am really excited about this conversation. Uh, You are kicking off season two of Early Risers. And quite frankly, when they asked me who would be your dream guest to be on this podcast, you were the first name that I thought of. (laughs) So I am so pleased that you're here with me today. Well, I'm honored that you thought of me, Diane, and happy to be with you. So I've learned a little bit about your background and you wrote a book in, uh, was it 97? Why? Yes. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria that has actually had a real resurgence on the New York Times bestseller list since the murder of George Floyd? And you talk about racial identity development, which I find fascinating, first of all. Um, And one of the ideas that 
uh, or the myths, I would say, that I try to dispel on early risers is that many people say, well, children are colorblind, children are not racist, and so why should we talk to young children about race? And what I try to say is that children are actually developing their cultural and racial identity uh, from the moment they're born, actually. And so can you talk a little bit about how we develop this racial identity what is happening in our brains uh, developmentally when we're young? Sure. Let's just start with this idea that children are learning from the time they're born about the world around them. Physical difference is something that children notice and start to comment on as soon as they have language. You know, two-year-olds can notice that somebody's skin is darker or lighter than theirs and ask about it. They can notice that somebody's hair is curly or straight and want to touch it. In my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? I share a story that happened to one of my children. I have two sons and the oldest one, when he was three, was in a uh, daycare center. And one of his three-year-old friends told him that his skin was brown because he drank too much chocolate milk. <laughs> and when I picked him up from school that day, he asked me, he said, Mom, Tommy says my skin is brown because I drink chocolate milk. Is that true? And I, of course, shared with him that it was not true. I <laughs> right. said, your skin is brown because you have something in your skin called melanin. Everybody has some, but the more you have in your skin, the browner it is, and it helps protect your skin from the sun. And we talked a little bit more about melanin. And I said, and at your school, you are the kid with the most, but everybody has some, even Tommy, right? Mm -hmm. You have more than Tommy, which is why your skin is browner. So we had this chat, but Tommy at three was making that statement based on an observation. He had seen my son drink chocolate milk. Right. <laughs> he, you know, he was trying to figure out the difference. Why is Jonathan's skin brown and my skin is not brown. Well, Jonathan is drinking that chocolate milk. Maybe that has something to do with it. I tell this story to say at the age of three, he's noticing difference and he's trying mm -hmm. to make sense of it. Now, the next day I went to school and I spoke to the teacher in the mm -hmm. three-year-old room and I said, you know, I'm wondering how are you talking about difference in this classroom? You know, questions come up and I'm wondering how, you know, you're handling these questions. Well, what she said to me is it hasn't come up. Mm. Well, we knew that it had come up because my son had reported it. She might not have heard that conversation. I don't think she was being dishonest. But what I think is that she wasn't tuned in to the things that kids were saying. She was right. missing those conversations and she was also missing an opportunity to help kids understand that answer about melanin in the skin and why one person's skin is light and another person's skin is dark. There are very appropriate children's books that you can read to preschoolers about physical difference, you know, and the ways in which we are the same, but also different in terms of our physical appearance. Um, these are conversations that can be had in an age appropriate way, but they weren't having those conversations which left Tommy out in the dark, right? He was trying to figure something out without adult guidance. So when we think about 
children absorbing information they are, but if we don't provide it, then they start drawing their own conclusions, some of which will be inaccurate. Yes. The other thing that I want to say is that in Tommy's statement to my son, when he said, your skin is brown because you drink too much chocolate milk, I want to put a little emphasis here on the too much, because what Tommy was saying is, you're doing something wrong, Mm. you know, that um, embedded in his question or in his comment was already an assumption that it is better to be lighter. Right. Right. Now, he didn't come out and say there's something wrong with you, but he was like, you know, you're doing too much of this. This is why this is happening. Right. Kids do start to learn, even as young as three and four, that there is a hierarchy of racial value, that some people are more valued. Some physical appearance is more desirable than other physical appearance. Those values or attitudes are absorbed, not because they are innate to us, but because that's what they're learning. They're watching TV. Who gets the star on the television? Who gets to be the star in the book? You know, what toys are being brought into the house and what do those toys look like? The messages about value, human value, and the hierarchy Mm -hmm. of human value is part of what I call in my book, the smog we're all breathing. And Mm. that smog, is being taken in by not just adults, not just middle schoolers, not just, you know, first graders, but by babies, toddlers, preschoolers. And if you live in a smoggy place, you will become a smog breather, right? Right. Um, So if we think about the ways that racism, the messages are embedded in our culture, even if we are silent on the subject, kids are going to absorb that information. Yes, that is so fascinating, Dr. Tatum. And what I keep thinking about is if an adult, the teacher or a parent had overheard that conversation, what would have been an appropriate response to Tommy? Because I wonder if what happens is parents hear those kinds of conversations and then they tell Tommy, oh, we don't talk about that. Um, you just yes. please, you know, don't say that again. And so Tommy learns that it's taboo to even raise the issue. So yes. what do you think would have been an appropriate response to Tommy? Let's imagine the teacher had heard that conversation. Mm-hmm. She might have said something like, Tommy, that's an interesting idea. I wonder what made you think that. And Tommy mm-hmm. might say, well, see, he's drinking chocolate milk. You know, and he might have said that. And, and, and the teacher might have said, you know, I see how you got to that conclusion, but let me tell you something. If you drink chocolate milk, your skin color is not going to change. Mm-hmm. And if Jonathan stops drinking chocolate milk, his skin color is not going to change. Skin color has everything to do with our parents and what our parents look like. Jonathan's parents have brown skin and therefore he has brown skin. Your Mm -hmm. parents have light skin and therefore you have light skin. I mean, that's one way you might talk about it. Now that Mm -hmm. raises Mm -hmm. questions for kids who are adopted and, you know, that could get complicated too. But having said that, and actually, why is it that some people have darker skin than other people? Well, there's something in the skin called melanin. Melanin helps protect your skin from the sun. So it's pretty common that people who came from places where the sun is quite strong to have darker skin. 
like in Africa, for example, mm-hmm. their skin tends to be browner because they need that protection from the sun's rays. People who live in colder places where the sun doesn't shine for long periods of time, they tend to have lighter skin. And actually, that is helpful to them because lighter skin helps you produce a special ingredient we all need called vitamin D. Mm -hmm. And you can produce it more easily in a shorter amount of time if your skin doesn't have as much melanin in it. So people who came from cold places tend to have lighter skin. People who came from warm places tend to have darker skin. Isn't that neat? I like that. So you talk a lot also about how we can maybe respond to some things that children might say or, you know, what they might be thinking when it comes to race. Yes. And I'll give you an example. So when I was very young, two, three, four, all of my playmates were white. And there was a point in time when I believed that I wanted to be white. This really scared my parents. And in fact, resulted in our move a little closer to the city. However, you say that when very young children of color express a desire to be white, it's not necessarily self-rejection. Can you explain why that is? Well, we know that children want to be, as even adults do, we all want to fit in, right? And so we want to have a sense of belonging to a group. And so when children perceive difference, they often want to change that difference so that they can be the same Mm -hmm. as their friends, right? So if your friends are white, if they have light skin, you might say, you know, I want to be like them. Not because you think there's something wrong necessarily with how you look, but because you want to look like your friends, right? right? Even in the same family, we can find physical difference, right? You know, sometimes... Children have different skin tones than their Mm -hmm. parents do. Sometimes they have different hair color than their parents Mm -hmm. do. And it's not uncommon for a preschooler to say, you know, why is your skin dark and daddy's skin is light? You know, or, you know, to ask these questions. And it's not necessarily bringing a value system to it, but it's, again, a, a question of belonging. Who You know, think about what preschoolers are learning. They're learning to categorize, right. you know, the, the square blocks go in the square holes, the round blocks go mm-hmm. in the round holes. You know, they're learning their colors. And the language we use to talk about physical difference is quite confusing, right? Because we mm-hmm. talk about Black people. They don't look like the Black crayon, right? We talk about <laughs> white people. They don't look like the white crayon. So these concepts that we as adults take for granted are confusing to children But to come back to your question about a sense of racial or ethnic identity, kids are learning in the context of a race-conscious society, right? There's so much information, so much messaging in the popular culture about racial categories and who belongs with whom. And Black children, in particular, may start to learn early on that White people, white children get access to things that they don't, right? Children of color are much less likely to be in a book where they are the star of the story than white children are, or even animals. There are more children's books about animals than there are children's books about kids of color, 
Interesting. So they are, you know, starting to learn the rules. And in that context, they start to internalize some of the things. Like maybe it's better to be blonde. Maybe it's better to be white. Maybe I want to be like my friends, especially if they don't have another peer group Mm. within which to feel a sense of community. up, Dr. Tatum explains how we can use everyday moments like bath time to build self-esteem in our children. It's bath time and you're washing your child in the tub. Oh, I love your pretty brown skin. Oh, look at these old curls. Aren't they so wonderful? I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. My guest today is Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She's a psychologist who's known for her work around race and racial identity development. You talk about um, how children are developing uh, not only their racial identity, but their identity of, of who they are. And so part of that is something we don't like to talk about a lot, but it's called colorism. Yes. And so this is something that happens sometimes in um, communities of color, where, as you talk about, that hierarchy of color still exists. And how can that affect a child's self-identity? When we assume that someone is better or worse because of the shade of their skin, Within a community of color, we refer to that as colorism. Certainly, colorism is a form of what I would call internalized racism. It's as though we have, we meaning people of color, have internalized the messages around that human hierarchy of value. The lighter you are, the better you are. And if Mm -hmm. you internalize that, then you can project it onto people you love, people in your family. And we talk about colorism relative to skin color, but we can also talk about it in the context of hair texture, for example. Mm -hmm. So-called good hair. You know, Mm -hmm. if you hear that phrase, you know, somebody's talking about someone whose hair is straighter than Mm -hmm. um, somebody else's hair. So the standards of beauty, again, that so-called racial hierarchy manifests itself in those kinds of attitudes. But it can be quite... Uh, hurtful and painful. You know, when you talk to Black women, for example, um, they may give you examples of uh, comments somebody makes. Oh, you know, you're pretty, you know, you're dark, but still pretty, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as though being dark and pretty were somehow in conflict. And you can see that in terms of uh, a Black child not wanting to play with a Black doll. No, give me the white doll. The white doll will be better, right? That kind of preference is a a sign of internalizing those negative messages that are so pervasive in the society. Yes, yes. So I'm thinking about parents out there or caregivers that might be listening and thinking, well, what can I do for my child of color to counteract that racial self-hatred? And even if my child is white, what can I do to kind of dispel that hierarchy Uh, within my child, even if they're white? Let's talk about the kids of color first, and then Mm -hmm. I'll talk about 
what white parents can do with white children. But for the parent who is uh, raising a child of color, what I would say is affirmation, affirmation, affirmation. (laughs) And what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, it's bath time and you're washing your child in the tub. You know, you've got a preschooler in the tub or, you know, toddler. Oh, I love your pretty brown skin. Oh, look at these old curls. Aren't they so wonderful? To sort of affirming the child's physical characteristics in a way that lets that child know this is a really desirable part of you. Oh, what a cute right. little nose, just like mine. And, you know, all of those parts of the child's physical appearance that you know as the adult may be devalued by the wider society, you can frame as a real asset for that child. You know, part of what makes them so cute and lovable to you, right? Is that <laughs> beautiful brown skin, that those little curls. And then providing images. Right. You know, there are not as many books with kids of color in them, but they exist. Find them, have them in the house, you know, read them together, talk about, oh, look, he looks just like you. You know, um, those kinds of strategies reinforce a positive sense of self for that kid of color. Now, if you are a white parent raising a white child, you don't have to find books that represent white kids. Right. They're everywhere. You know, you don't have to look for special images. They're on the television, you know, but you do want to be sure you're exposing your child in positive ways to other people, right? So, you know, should a white child have a white doll? Sure, but they can also have a black doll. They can also read those books that are multiracial, have multiracial characters. They can also have friendships with kids of color, who they're spending time with and who are seen as, you know, lovable and, you know, oh, Jonathan's coming over today. You know, what a cute little boy he is. I, you know, I, I'm so glad you, you two of you are friends. Now, some parents might say, well, I don't know any black kids. My child lives in an all white neighborhood and goes to an all white preschool. And how do I do that? What I can say is that when adults have multiracial friendships, their children have multiracial friendships. Right. So if you don't have any yourself as an adult, that's something you're going to have to work on in order to make sure that your kids social network is a diverse one. Um, And somebody might say, well, how do I do that? Well, start (laughs) with something you've got in common. You know, do you like to golf? Find a multiracial golf club. You know, it's possible to find places of common interest where you can an authentic way, develop relationships with people who look different than you. And that opens a wide range of relationships for your child. I I love that because with anything, as we're raising children, it's modeling. And so if you're a parent and you're modeling that um, we're living in a multicultural world, I have multicultural friends and people that I love, then they see that and they feel comfortable uh, emulating that as, as well. Um, so this is um, such a wonderful conversation. You know, as I think about parents, you know, these conversations that you're talking about, you know, can be very joyful in many ways. But there will be times when we have to have conversations that are not pleasant about race. You know, uh, having to explain, for instance, about police brutality, you know, Black parents or parents of color having to really 
prepare their children for the world. And and I know that in your book, you you even talk a little bit about some of the difficult conversations you had to have with your sons. And so what are, are some language we can give parents about how to have these conversations and, and also how we as adults enter into these conversations, knowing that our children are like watching and absorbing everything that we that we do? Yes. Well, you know, of course, I know we're in this conversation talking a lot about young children, Mm -hmm. you know, preschoolers. And um, certainly an event like the murder of George Floyd is a difficult thing to talk to a three or four year old about. Mm -hmm. And in an ideal world, you know, they wouldn't have seen the images of him having his life snuffed out. But you know, maybe they walked in the room at the wrong time and saw that on the screen um, and had questions. You know, mommy, why is that man kneeling on his neck? You know, that's a hard conversation to have, but it is possible. Um, and one of the things that I would say is that it's important to keep in mind that we don't want to frighten our children. Right. right? We want to empower them and we want them to know that um, there are allies. So yes. those are the things that I think about. So I would say, let's imagine that it happened, you know, and the four-year-old is asking about that situation to say, you know, what you saw was very unfair. That person, the police officer, was doing something that was very, very wrong. He was mistreating that person and he mistreated him so badly that that person died. Now, the good news is we can say that police officer had to go to jail because what he, you know, we can now Mm -hmm. say that. Right. Now we can now say uh, that. It was wrong and he was held accountable. He had to go to jail. Why did he do that? I don't really know why he did it. But I can tell you that there are times when Black people in particular are mistreated because the person who is doing the mistreating somehow thinks they're not as worthy as other people. That is a really wrong idea. We know better. Mm-hmm. Right? We know better. And that's why so many people were marching in the streets because they saw how wrong that was and they didn't want it to ever happen again. And that's, you know, so you can hear in this language, you mm-hmm. know, like it was wrong. We are mm-hmm. working to prevent it from happening. You need to know I'm here. Your dad's mm-hmm. here. We're here to protect you. Now, that's what you say to a four-year-old. Now, if you're talking to a 14-year-old, you're not always there to protect that 14-year-old. Sure. They're out riding their bikes. Mm-hmm. They're on their own. They're, they get a driver's license when they're a little older. Mm-hmm. And that's why so many Black parents have what they call, what we call the top, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you're 14, you need to know that It's not likely that this is going to happen, but it could. And here's why it's important for you to know what to do if you're ever stopped by a police officer. That's a 14-year-old conversation. It's not a four-year-old conversation. The four-year-old conversation is about, this was unfair. We are working to change it. You don't need to worry about this because I'm here to protect you. Yeah. Uh, in your in your book, you talk something about being color silent. What happens when we 
don't encourage children to have these conversations. We shush, shush them or they learn that talking about race is taboo. What, what happens to them then? Yes. Well, we know that sh- happens a lot, right? We do shush yes. children. Um, and, you know, a grocery store example that I use sometimes is, let's imagine there had been a white child in the grocery store who said, mommy, mommy, look at that brown boy. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, this happened. <laughs> yes, and you can imagine that that mother might have said, Shh, "Right, yes." She thinks that maybe the child has embarrassed the person or family he's pointing at, and so um, you can appreciate the impulse to hush. But the problem with that impulse is that it communicates there's something wrong with what you just said. There's something mm-hmm. wrong with what you've just noticed. Don't comment. If you, if you see it, don't say anything about it. Um, and that message gets reinforced over and over again in ways that lead people to really become incapacitated in their ability to talk about what they see. Yeah. And as I say, you know, when parents say, my child is colorblind, you know, my daughter has a black friend and she never mentioned that she was black. She just said, oh, the girl in the red coat on the playground. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's only one black kid on the playground and she's wearing a red coat and your daughter didn't say she was black, it's probably not that she didn't notice. It's probably that she's learned she's not supposed to say so. Right. Um, that what we think is color blindness is actually color silence or color mutant, perhaps. You know, that we, uh, we teach our kids not to comment on the difference they see, not to ask questions, just don't talk about it. The problem that turns into an adulthood is a room full of adults who can't have a meaningful conversation about race or racism, right? Yes. You know, I have the opportunity, the privilege of talking to large groups of people um, about these topics. And I often start by asking them to think about an early race-related memory. And most people can call something up. Um, usually, then I ask, well, how old were you at the time of this thing you remember? Usually people say five or six, seven, early school age, usually. Mm-hmm. And then I ask, what feelings are associated with the thing you remember? Without even knowing what it is, just tell me the feeling. We'll mm-hmm. say things like confusion, embarrassment, shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, and then sadness. And then if you say, well, you know, you still remember this years later, you still remember it. You still remember the emotion attached to it. When it happened, did you talk to anybody about it? Most people will say they did not. And if we Mm -hmm. know five and six and seven year olds, we know they're pretty chatty, right? We know that they tend to just blurt out family secrets. (laughs) They they share (laughs) things that you don't always want them to share. But If you're that age and that unfiltered, and yet decades later, you can call up this painful experience of something you saw or witnessed. It might not have even happened to you. It might have been something you saw happen to somebody else, or you heard someone say something you didn't quite understand, but you still remember it and you didn't talk about it. That lets us know how deep the silencing is. And that ultimately interferes with our ability to take positive action today. You can't solve a problem you can't talk about. 
we have to be able to have these conversations. Absolutely. And which is why we're having this conversation today. Um, before you go, I, I just want to ask you, so if you were raising your young children today, what are some of the resources that you might use or or tips or tools that, that you could even recommend for parents that have young children today? Um, if I were raising young children today, um, I would want to make sure that I was diversifying their lives in all the ways that I could. I would want to expose them to people of different backgrounds in their everyday lives, you know, in the places we visit, in the friends who come to the house, in the programs we watch together, in the books we read. I want them to have an understanding of the world that they are growing up in. Let's be clear. Mm. I was born in 1954 in 1954, 90% of the U.S. population was white. Only 10% mm-hmm. other people, right? Ten, not just 10% African-American, mm-hmm. 10% African-American, Latinx, Asian-American, Indigenous American, all of that, just 10%. If right. you are a young person born today, you are growing up in a population of your age mates that is likely to be 50% kids of color close to that. And if your child isn't having the opportunity to engage in meaningful and positive ways with people different from themselves, they are at risk of being what I'm going to call a social dinosaur, not knowing Mm. how to engage in ways that are productive and functional in an increasingly pluralistic, multiracial, multiethnic society. Yes, absolutely. Social dinosaur. Well, Dr. Tatum, I cannot thank you enough for joining me on Early Risers. I This has been an exceptional conversation. I know that people are going to really appreciate all of the information and tools and even language that you have given us today on how to talk with young children about race. It's been my honor. So thank you for the invitation. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum is a clinical psychologist and author of the best-selling book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? and Other Conversations About Race. She's also the President Emerita of my alma mater, Spelman College, a historically Black women's college in Atlanta, Georgia. As you just heard, Dr. Tatum talks a lot about the importance of representation and how our kids, particularly kids of color, need to be able to see themselves in books and media. She has some wonderful books she recommends for young children. One of her favorites is Faith Ringgold's Aunt Harriet's Underground Railroad in the Sky. We've included links to that book along with other resources on our episode page. Before we go... I'm excited to let you know that my team at Think Small Institute has just published a series of discussion guides for all of our season one episodes. So if you haven't listened to our first season, or even if you have, it's a great opportunity to listen and dig a little deeper. 
We really want to empower listeners with concrete tools to be able to have these conversations. Also this season, we're going to be building discussion guides for all of our new episodes, including this conversation with Dr. Tatum. Look for those new episodes and discussion guides at npr.org backslash early risers. While you're there, you can also subscribe to this podcast. And for more resources on how to talk with very young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org. This episode of Early Risers was produced by Nancy Rosenbaum. Our technical director is Alex Simpson, and our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. Special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. Thanks for listening.